Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for being our shepherd and for all that that means for leading us, making us lie down and rest, for restoring our souls, for providing for us and protecting us through dark valleys. Thank you for all you do for us, and I just pray that today you would use these words and speak to each of our hearts something special. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, well, first of all, I just want to have a little uh, Academy Award acceptance speech where I thank people, because it's um, just very special to be up here today, and I want to thank Dick, who couldn't be here, but thank him for asking me to speak, and I want to um, also thank some of the special women in the church, because um, Mother's Day is coming, and... um, I, I want to thank the church, first of all, for letting me speak as a woman. And um, I want to thank Debbie Bellingham for being here and Jack Bellingham. Debbie was the first uh, speaker as a woman, a first female speaker, and she's a trailblazer. So I want to thank them for coming. And I, I would just like to thank some of the women in the church who have been um, spiritual mothers to me because women are leaders in this church, you know, what, no matter um, if they're speaking or not. There are women who are just really great examples and so I, I thought of just some of the ones who, um, for me, have been special as spiritual mothers. And so I think of Jillian Corfield and Elfie, where is she? Elfie Rivera, Pat Cook, and Nancy McClure. Where's Nancy? Nancy. Thank you. <laughs> they inspire me, so I just wanted to start that way. And it is bittersweet to be here speaking today because knowing that in two months or so uh, my family will be moving and so this is like my one and only chance. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, junior church is dismissed. So it's up through grade six. If you are up through grade six, you are dismissed to junior church. All right. Yeah. Okay. So as, as we've thought about moving many times over the years and as it's actually approaching it's like I really realize all that I will lose and um, especially the people of this church this church has been a family to me for more than 14 years so I just want to thank all of you Um, when Dick asked me to speak he as part of this series on God's who God is he gave me a choice of either God's goodness or faithfulness and I chose his faithfulness and then I chose as my scripture Psalm 23 which uh, is one of the most familiar scriptures in the whole Bible, right? Like, I memorized it when I was a kid, and I'm just interested in how many of you have memorized that psalm. Raise your hand. Wow, wow, lots of you, like half at least. So we know it really well, and um, sometimes when we know something really well, it's easy to just kind of skim over it and not really think about the words. Um, We might, like, there are all these praise songs and hymns that use it, and it's something we might quote in a condolence card or just, you know, it's just kind of, it can be trite, But um, I think as you dig into it, it's a really powerful and deep psalm, and it's had a lot of meaning to me over the years. So my question for you today is, you may know these words really well, but do you really live their reality? Do you let God give you rest? Do you let God lead you? Do you let him restore your soul? Do you trust him in dark times? Do you let him comfort you and take away your fears? Do you let him supply all your needs? And not just do you do them, but how do you do, do, how do you do them? Because it sounds great, but it's like, how do we actually do all that? It's really pretty uh, challenging, actually. 
And it actually sounds passive, letting God do this. And you think of a sheep lying down. It just sounds passive. But actually it's not passive because it involves actively putting our trust in God, actively trusting him when it's hard to do. And the reason we can do that is because God is faithful. He is completely faithful. And the word faithfulness implies both constancy and loyalty. And Pastor Dick spoke on how God doesn't change, and that is part of faithfulness, not changing, just being consistent. But there's more to it than that. There's the idea of loyalty, of keeping promises, never letting you down. When we think of the word faithful, when we use it in modern life, it's usually used for a husband and wife, right? He's a faithful husband. She's a faithful wife, meaning they keep their promises, their wedding vows. And it's a very powerful thing. God keeps his promises to us. And Psalm 23 doesn't actually use the word faithfulness. That word is found more than 30 times in the Psalms alone. There are many Psalms about God's faithfulness and other verses about faithfulness. But I chose Psalm 23 because of the picture it gives of what God does, how he is faithful, the shepherd to the sheep. And that shepherd metaphor is a pretty common one in the Bible. It appears more than 40 times. And I, it was an easy-to-understand image for the people of Israel because there were lots of shepherds filled with shepherds back in the time of King David, who himself is one of the most famous shepherds in the Bible and who's attributed with writing this psalm. So the people could understand it. They knew what it was for a shepherd to take care of sheep. And David obviously had firsthand experience of what that meant. And a shepherd had to be faithful. And it was more than just taking care of the sheep, but it was actually putting his own life at risk. David talks about this at one point when he's talking to Saul, how he faced the the wild animals and saved his sheep. And a good shepherd would actually die for his sheep if he had to. And Jesus, of course, talked about being the good shepherd in John 10. And he emphasized that sacrificial nature of shepherds when he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So there's that familiarity, that knowing the sheep, and that willingness to sacrifice, which God has, obviously, through Jesus. He sacrificed himself. So that is why it's such a perfect picture of faithfulness. Now, I wanted to talk for a minute of sheep. Why sheep? Let's talk about sheep. And I have one slide. I don't know if my one and only visual aid... But, of course, Paul was our sheep, so if the slide doesn't work, we have the image of Paul as the sheep up front. Um, Do we have the slide? We don't have it. Okay, well, I had a slide. I did have one visual aid of a very silly-looking sheep with its tongue sticking out, and it looked just kind of dumb. And the thing is, you know, when you think of a sheep, we usually think of dumb, right? They're not known as being smart, so I'm wondering, should we be offended that David is saying we're like sheep? You know, should should that be offensive to us? Because sheep, they can be dumb. So I I read, when I was researching this, I read about um, that sheep have actually led each other off cliffs before. And in fact, in 2005, the BBC reported that in Turkey, 1,500 sheep followed each other off a 15-foot cliff, leading to 400 of them dying. The other lucky 1,100 landed on the nice, soft, dead sheep and survived. But, you know, that's pretty stupid. Um, 
And then I read, you know, different people online were defending sheep and saying they're not really that dumb, you know, they, and they do protect their young and things like that. They're not just totally helpless. But the point of, I think, choosing sheep as a, an image is that they do wander off. They follow each other. They follow a leader, right? So uh, if the leader is a suicidal fellow sheep, then that's unlucky for that sheep. Um, but they also will follow a good, faithful shepherd, and that who will not lead them astray. And so sheep can be very vulnerable. And, you know, Jesus talked about the one wandering away, leaving the 99, and that he, the faithful shepherd, will go and get that sheep and bring that sheep back. And we sang about that this morning, which I appreciated. So sheep need guidance just like we do. They need taken care of in this life, and so do we. Even though we may not like that thought, it's actually true. And if we quickly look over the psalm, we can see a number of these needs clearly addressed. We need rest, guidance, soul restoration, protection, comfort, and provision. And I could preach, you know, or any of a, anyone could preach a sermon on each thing. So I had to narrow it down. And the two that were really most powerful for me when I, looked, when I dug into this was the need for spiritual rest and the need for comfort in our dark valleys. And as I got into this, I found that there is something connecting these two, these two needs. And the theme that emerged is that is fear, that there's fear involved in both of these areas, that fear is the thief that can steal the sheep, and that we need Jesus to help us face fear. And that's something that I've you know, dealt with. We all deal with that in our lives. So I'm going to be talking about spiritual rest and the dark valleys and, how, and the fears that we face in these areas. Um, I find the wording of verse 2 significant. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He forces us sometimes to lie down. Nearly Just providing the pastures isn't always enough. That's where the food is, right? That's where the sheep can eat. But he has to force them sometimes to lie down. And maybe we've experienced that in our own lives when illness makes us just have to rest or some other situations going on where we just totally have to get close to God or we're going to just lose it. Um, But there are also times when everything's going well and we just get so busy and caught up in our lives that we don't rest. We have so many demands on us. Our culture is telling us to constantly be busy and achieve and have you know, visible success. Our culture doesn't emphasize restoring our souls or spiritually resting. And this goes for people in the career world, you know, very much so. They have to meet deadlines and goals and targets and get promoted and all these things. But actually, surprisingly, even in the world of stay-at-home moms, of which I've been mainly a part for the last 15 years, there is actually pressure and in the world of kids today, there's a lot of pressure. It's not just the career world where we feel this. And I, as a stay-at-home mom, you know, when my first daughter was a little baby, I just had to make her look cute, you know, and I took her out and make sure she was fat and happy and dressed nicely. That wasn't that hard. But by the time she turned two, I began to contend with the pressure of competitive mothering in the area of birthday parties. Okay, I'm going to just talk for a minute about competitive birthday parties. So by the time Britta turned two, I'd been to a number of birthday parties. I'd, we moved here right when she was turning one. And then when she, before she turned two, she went to a bunch of little kids' birthday parties. And I realized then by the time she was two, what was expected of me? There needed to be a very clear theme. 
There needed to be related snacks and cake, of course, homemade cake, preferably. There had to be age-appropriate games, crafts, and decorations, all in line with the theme, right? It had to be really theme-oriented. And so I asked Britta, turning to, what kind of party do you want? What do you want your theme to be? Or I'm sure I didn't say it like that, but I said, what kind of party do you want? And she said, bears! So I was like, okay, bears, a bear party. I can do this. And I, I decided to make it beyond bears. It was wild animals. So I can still remember very clearly making that bear cake that afternoon for the party that was the next day. It took me the entire afternoon because I had to, you know, make this round cake with a little, it had a little party hat on. And then it had like three colors of frosting. I had to decorate it really nicely. And I had to make matching cupcakes. And I remember at the end of that, I had like a sore back. I'm like, wow, that took all afternoon. But it was beautiful, of course. It was fabulous. Um, and then I, that night, the night before, I made uh, decorations for the wall. I was like drawing wild animals. And I had goodie bags with drawn, you know, hand-drawn wild animals of different kinds all over the goodie bags. And my husband, John, was like, is this really, you know, really necessary to do all this work? I'm like, yeah, well, this is good, you know, and it's resourceful because it's cheap. I'm doing it myself, you know, kind of Martha Stewart-like. And uh, I guess I was missing the point that it was two-year-olds coming to the party, right? But it's like, no, in my mind, it's like, not just two-year-olds, the mothers will be there, right? They don't drop off kids at age two. So the moms would be there, and they would be judging my cake and all my decorations and my themed crafts. And so I just, it had to be perfect. I really felt I was going to get judged. And um, a couple years later, Marika was born, our second daughter, and she had her first party at two. And from that time, every, twice a year, it would be like leading up to the birthday. It's like, okay, here we go. I'm gearing up. I'm gearing up, get the theme, get the goodie bags, get all the stuff. And it was like, Kind of fun, but then also it's like I'm, it's final exam week, right? It's like a test. I have to pass the test. And there were high points and low points along the way. So like Marika's butterfly party at age three was a high point for me. It's like, oh, wonderful butterfly theme, easy theme. Um, there were some low points, which if you, I'm not going to talk about, but if you ask Marika, she'll say, oh, yeah, there was that year, blah, blah, blah. So... Um, Early on, I actually thought, this is an East Coast thing, right? This is a Northeast thing, because in Michigan, where I grew up, I had one birthday party that I can recall. There was no theme. The theme was cake and ice cream. (laughs) And so it's like, this is just an East Coast, high-pressure, you know, thing. But then, as time passed, I realized this is actually the culture, the cultural shift in our country, because my sister in Indiana throws parties for her kids. It's just the, the expectations are higher than they used to be and what we feel we have to do to make our kids happy or to make the mothers, you know, not judge us. <laughs> and uh, this cultural shift has produced over-involved and nervous parents and overscheduled and stressed children at times. Um, you know, we hear about the college admissions race, which has just gotten so much worse in the last 20 or 30 years where kids feel from the time they're in middle school they have to achieve all these things and that they have to have like a resume when they get to college of all these wonderful things they've done. And, you know, I I chose a lighthearted example of the birthday party, but it's actually sometimes really stressful to be a parent or a child in this culture today. Um, There's a tyranny of high expectations. We are all constantly being bombarded by messages, not just parents for parents, but 
how we're supposed to take care of ourselves, what we're supposed to eat, how we're supposed to exercise, how we're supposed to make an impact in our communities or at work. Um, social media adds a lot of pressure. We want to live up to these people who have these, you know, they post their amazing birthday parties online now, which at least when Britta was two, they didn't do that yet. Um, but it's just added to the pressure. And as Christians, we may also feel that we need to, you know, have great Bible studies all the time. We need to pray more. It's like this pressure that's not necessarily from God. And that's just a partial list of the pressures that we can be under. So as I thought about this, the need for rest, you know, the need for rest in the midst of this, what really came out to me is that all these things have to do with fear or insecurity, but not, it's not like as strong as fear of death, but it's still pretty strong at times. There's the fear of being judged as being inadequate, like these birthday party competitions. There's fears that our children will suffer if we don't do things a certain way. There's a fear that we will just miss out on something. We're not doing the best we can do, and we're missing something in this life. In, in the case of uh, young people today, the fear of not getting into that top university. I'm going to miss out if I don't get in there. The fear of falling prey to illness, illness or disease if we don't take good care of ourselves. The fear of letting others down, and even the fear of letting God down. And these are all bad things, and we don't want to do these things. But the, the point is fear is a really bad driver, and if we let fear drive our lives and our decisions, then we may swerve and <laughs> crash into a tree because we're, we're not really calm. We're not peaceful. We're not letting God steer what we do in our lives. In the case of the sheep metaphor, fear can drive the sheep away from the flock, literally to be consumed by a predator. And fear is a predator in our lives. It's a universal emotion which we all feel sometimes. Sometimes it's for our own good. We should fear certain things and avoid them. But the challenge for us is how we deal with fear. Do we let it push us closer to the shepherd's side so that he can guide us through these fears and help us actually confront them and call them what they are and deal with them and not be consumed by them? Because when we're close to our shepherd, fear actually will disappear. Insecurity will disappear. The predators must run away. Now, Psalm 23 is not about getting God to bless us. It's about telling us how God is already blessing us and wants to bless us and is waiting to give us the rest and things that, the peace that we need. It sounds easy, again, to be that sheep, but it's actually pretty hard to trade our fear to actively resist it. It's an active resistance of the fear and an active turning to God instead to trust, to trust that he will protect us and he will guide us through these minefields of modern life and stress that we go through. Sometimes these pressures are just distractions in our lives and we need to evaluate our busyness. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it because of fear of failure or is it because God wants me to do these things are they building me up are they restoring my soul are they actually tearing me down and I actually think my husband John was right it wasn't worth it for me to go to those lengths when Britta was two or you know it just wasn't worth it I asked Marika this morning actually do you remember your butterfly birthday party she's like um I don't know I was and she was three it was her third she had no memory of it so it's like, okay, so she said, I've seen pictures. So we have to ask, you know, are we going a little too far and not being 
not resting when we need rest. Um, there's such a thing as sacred idleness, which I, I ran across that quote as I prepared this. Uh, George MacDonald, a Christian writer from 150 years ago, was a novelist, and in one of his novels there's a quote, Certainly work is not always required of a man. There is such a thing as a sacred idleness, the cultivation of which is now fearfully neglected. And that was written 150 years ago. Um, So we need that. We need to actually cultivate that and make space in our lives for a time when we can rest, be in the presence of God, and not just Sunday mornings, but maybe every day for a little time every day. Not just in times of crisis either but when things are also going well. So I want to move on now and talk about um, another kind of fear, more existential fear, and that is the fear that we can feel in the valley of the shadow of death or the valley of death. Let's look again at verse 4. I'll just read it for you. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The King James Version, which I memorized and I'm sure many of you memorized, says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The Hebrew word for this valley of the shadow of death is used poetically all 18 times that it occurs in the Bible. It's not talking about literal death. We sometimes think of this as talking about at the end of life, you know, God will comfort us, and that is certainly true. But whenever it's used in the Bible, it actually is talking about, It's used metaphorically to talk about darkness as opposed to light, sorrow, and fear, sometimes danger, not not death, actually. So it can refer to any time of fear in our lives, any time of darkness in our lives. Maybe it's a time of loss or mourning, a time of danger, maybe spiritual danger or physical danger. And we cannot avoid walking through these valleys throughout our lives. It's not just when we die. We would love to avoid them. No one wants to be in the valley of the shadow of death. But all of us will spend some time walking through it. because, And some of us more than others. Some just just find ourselves there again and again, I'm sure. Some of you may be in that right now. Um, but we cannot avoid the, this valley because we can't avoid loss in our lives unless we never love anybody. We don't even want to avoid that, right? We uh, cannot avoid loneliness. There are times we will all feel loneliness. Sickness and suffering are part of life. Struggles are just a part of life of one kind or another, and no one escapes these things. And in the end, not one of us will escape physical death. So our challenge is how we face these times when they come. How do we walk through those dark valleys when we encounter them? Do we react to our pain and loss with self-pity, with anger, with fear? Do we cower in fear, or do we seek the presence of God, the shepherd, in these times, trusting that he's with us the whole time? Do we allow him to replace the fear, anger, or self-pity that we would naturally feel with a sense of his peace and presence, and sometimes the ability to forgive those who've wronged us and put put us in that valley to begin with? Um, It's significant that at this point in the psalm, the psalmist changes from talking about the shepherd in the third person as he to talking about him, addressing him directly as you or thou in the King James. Not only that, but now the shepherd's not guiding him ahead. The shepherd is next to him. It says, for you are with me. You are with me, next to me, right beside me, experiencing the dark valley right alongside me, comforting me with your very close presence. 
And many people I know can attest to feeling closer to God in times of crisis. I know that I have. Because, like I said, when things are going well, we get so busy and caught up in our lives that we often don't realize that God is present. But when things get hard, many of us do turn to God. We need God. We feel the need like never before. When I think about my own life, different times come to mind when that was really true. One of the most memorable times was when, as a brand new mother, I struggled with deep anxiety about whether I could really take care of this tiny little baby, and I actually had all these fears. So we lived in a two-floor apartment, and the bedrooms and the bathroom were upstairs. So I had to go up and down the stairs all the time with this you know, newborn baby, carrying her up and down, and they were very steep stairs. And I used to have images in my mind of, you're going to fall down these stairs, and she's going to fly out of your arms and slam into the wall. And it sounds funny, but I was really afraid that that would happen. And I'd be, like, carrying her like this down the stairs and, like, afraid. And I think some of it was postpartum depression, you know, postpartum issues, but I didn't recognize that. I just felt tormented. And that wasn't the only fear, but that was, like, a vivid one. But just, like, I I can't keep her alive, you know. I just, she's so little, she's so vulnerable and weak. And she was, you know, healthy, full-term baby. But I just had these fears. And they actually forced me to pray and meditate on scripture more than I ever, probably ever had, like really intensively, because I was just like, God, take this fear away, take this fear away. And it went on for a number of weeks. I didn't tell John because I thought he's going to think I'm crazy and have me commit committed. You know, like I'm just, I didn't, I just said I can't tell anybody. And, but I remember one, I don't know if it was a day or night, but I just was praying about this and I felt God clearly saying to me, don't be afraid. I love Britta more than you do, and I will take care of her. And that was like, oh. And it was just like this, this heaviness lifted from me, and I never had to struggle that way again. And over the years, I've, that's come back to me many times, like, I love her more than you do. And the same with Marika. I love her more. I'm the shepherd. You know, she's my sheep. It's just such a comfort to know that God is there for our children. And I mention that incident because I think as parents and grandparents and people responsible for others. It could be another family member that you feel yourself responsible for. It could be an aging parent. You just can tend to feel that anxiety, I think, doubly, because it's not you. You're not in... If it's me that I'm worried about, I can have some control. But if it's someone else, I just feel like, oh, my goodness, how vulnerable I feel to not be able to totally help my child. Because the thought of a child, your own child or your close family member suffering is often worse than our own selves suffering and we can get paralyzed by these fears but i just i just encourage you too to just realize god loves that person more than you do god is the one who's the shepherd you're not the shepherd you're taking care of them but god ultimately is their shepherd and there's no guarantee in this life you know as that the, that our children are going to be Christians and walk with God. We want to guarantee it, but they have a choice. It's their choice. But it's still such a comfort to know he's going to be there for them. If they wander away, he will still seek them out. If they become prodigals, he will be the father there to welcome them home when they come back. And that is such a comfort. I have actually, just in the last few weeks in preparing this, I've started praying Psalm 23 for my children, and it's actually very powerful. The Lord is Marika's shepherd. She shall not want. He makes her lie down in green pastures. He leads her, etc. He restores her soul. Or Britta. You know, like, it's really, it's, some, it's kind of like, oh, 
it's just a sense of release. And so I encourage you to do that. If you are dealing with anxiety for a child or a grandchild or an aging parent or sibling, pray this prayer for them, and it will help you to just let them go to the shepherd's care. Um, I find it interesting that the psalmist, that the way it's translated in many versions is the valley of the shadow of death, because the idea of the shadow that, that death casts over our lives, it's a big shadow, right? And it, it's, it can have to do with medical testing. It can have to do with going through and waiting to hear that doctor's report. And I've gone through that. I'm currently going through some testing, and it's like, that's just the fear that we can feel in these times. We feel ourselves so vulnerable. But we need to struggle to not, we need to not live our lives in that kind of fear. Some of us actually are take to being anxiety prone and worriers, and we may live most of our lives fearing what might happen. You, it's like the quip that I've read before saying, um, don't say it doesn't help to worry. I've read about thousands of things in my life, my life, and none of them have ever happened. Right? Well, yeah. But she, Sometimes we think that by worrying about all these things, we're actually changing it. We're making things come out right. But that's not true. And actually, when I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a scene in a children's book, a very good children's book called The War I Finally Won, which Marika and I recently read together. It's by Kimberly Brubaker Bradley. And in this book, the narrator, 12-year-old Ada, feels tremendous responsibility for her younger brother, Jamie because both of them were raised by an abusive, neglectful mother, so Ada basically became like his mother. And they're evacuated to the English countryside during World War II and stay with a a lovely woman who becomes like a mother to them. And Ada helps with the war effort by doing fire watching, which means that she takes shifts with someone else at night to stand in the church steeple very high up and look out over the countryside to see if there are any fires in the distance that came from German bombs. And she's terrified. The whole experience is terrifying to her because of her past. But she feels she has to do it. So I'm going to read you a very brief scene in which she's fire-watching with her friend Maggie. And whenever it says I, it's, it's the narrator, Ada, talking most of the times. So Ada says to Maggie, I have to keep watch. I have to be careful to keep bad things from happening again. Maggie replied, You couldn't keep bad things from happening before. You still can't. It isn't really up to you. I walked to the corner of the parapet. I looked out at the coal black sea. I'm fire watching to keep Jamie safe, I said. Jamie and me and everyone. You aren't, Maggie said. You're taking a turn watching for fires. That's all. If you weren't doing it, someone else would be. You could be home sleeping and you'd be just as safe. Please stop talking. I said, Maggie didn't. It isn't all only up to you. I looked at her. It feels that way. So she handed me the binoculars. We kept watch. No bombers came. Sometimes we, like Ada, feel that the well-being of our families, of our communities, of our whole nation somehow lies with us. It depends on us. If only we can make people safe. If only we can find the right school setting for our kids, they will flourish and everything will be fine. If only I can be kinder to my depressed friend, she will not hurt herself and everything will be okay. If only I can pray for our nation more regularly and get a bunch of people to pray together, all of our political divisions will begin to heal. Hmm, well, 
Now, aren't all these things ultimately up to God and not to us? We should look for the good school setting and be kind to people. We should pray for our nation. But we need to beware that we not feel like it's up to us and not God to do these things. And this, I learned this firsthand because as a teenager, my family started going to a church that was very much a faith kind of church. And it was into the prosperity gospel and the, you know, health and wealth gospel. And the message day after day, Sunday after Sunday was, your faith can make it all happen. And so we would be praying for people to be healed or whatever. And it was like, got to have the faith, got to have the faith. And it was just like this, oh, faith. And then if the person wasn't healed, we were like, we didn't have enough faith. We were not good enough. And people got very discouraged. The church never grew. People would leave the church. And years later, I looked back at that and said, that was very man-centered. It was like, it's up to us to do it. And I was like, well, no, actually it's not. We are supposed to pray in faith, but it's up to God whether or not he heals someone. We don't manipulate him that way. And, you know, our church isn't like that, but I think it still can get into our heads. If I can only, then this will happen. And there's a part of this whole trust in God of just letting go of that and saying, God, it's in your hands. These people are in your hands. Health is in your hands. We do our best, but then uh, the rest is up to God. So I just challenge you, if you're feeling like just like that about something, let it go. Deep, Take a deep breath, relax, and really try to shift your focus to looking at God and not the situation. Okay, I want to finish today by just talking about a few practical ways we can do these things. Uh, letting God give us rest in the midst of our busyness and fears of inadequacy and also trusting him through dark times because they may sound great in theory but they do go against the grain of society and they go against a lot of for a lot of us our own tendencies our own personalities so first of all for just the rest and restoration of our souls uh, one of the things that does really destroy peace i mean there are a lot of things that steal our peace right the busyness of our lives. Uh, I feel like media is a really big area that steals a lot of people's peace, and more and more so with the advent of the Internet and social media because it can make us feel so inadequate and just looking at other people's lives. (laughs) I know sometimes if I'm just not really feeling very happy and I go on Facebook, I'm like, ah, I can't do this, you know, go off of it because I see all these happy people celebrating in restaurants and whatever, vacations, and it's like, they're all so happy. And that's not true. We know know in our heads that that's an illusion, right? They only post those happy pictures. But it can really get to us and make us feel stress. Um, But not only that, you know, the cell phone with us all the time, a computer with us all the time that rings and dings and gets our attention. It's hard to feel any sense of rest when things are ringing and dinging. And if you're like me, I cannot hear a text ding and not check it within 60 seconds, right? Like, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to wait a few seconds. Okay, who was it? You know, like, it's just really hard. So I struggle with that. And, um, you know, kids have been raised with this, and they're just like, it's destroying rest and peace. And um, there, But that's not all. I mean, I, I actually, one of my biggest distractions in media is the daily newspaper that gets delivered to my house every morning. And there it is in a little, you know, bag. And I'm like, oh, I should read that. And so if once I start reading it, oh, I really shouldn't, you know, this is all very well written. And, you know, it's all about society today. And I should just 
spend an hour every day reading the paper. Well, at the end of that, I don't mean to spend an hour, but at the end of that hour, I do not feel happy and refreshed. I feel like, oh my goodness, what a mess this world is, right? And so then it's like, I shouldn't do that anymore. And for Lent, I actually gave up the daily newspaper. That was like, I'm not going to read the newspaper for a month or whatever it was, 40 days. And uh, I'm actually thinking I should probably do that again because it was actually refreshing. Instead, I read the Bible, and I felt much better, and the day started better. Now, you may have other bad habits or media habits that destroy your peace, that steal your rest. It could be just even books, you know, novels. It could be even good books. It's not – all these things can be good, but when they just steal all of your attention and make you – not rest, then they're bad. So I'm just encouraging you to think through your own lives. Is there something that is really distracting you from, from God and stealing your peace and your rest? And some ideas for that would be, you know, okay, give it all up completely, but that's pretty hard. So that's probably not a very realistic one. But you could decide to have a real Sabbath, you know, like on Sundays I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to read the paper or go on media at all, not go on social media. Or it could be like every day after a certain time, I'm not going to do it. It's good before bed to not go on these things. It could be like we've actually started at, we're not allowed to take phones to the table, so when we're sitting together, we cannot have a phone. Um, it could be that you just say, I'm, I'm going to turn off my notifications and I'm going to check only every so often to see if anyone's contacted me and I'm not going to just respond to the dings all the time. That could be something you do. You could give yourself a set amount of screen time a day, like people often do with their children. You could do that for yourself. I'm just saying these are all ideas I'm throwing out. You may have others. I do not necessarily do all these things, but I've done some of them or I've tried some of them, and I'm, I need to keep working on finding what works for me. Um, but then there's also the, the thought of general soul restoration, not just being giving something up, but what do we actually do that restores our souls and makes us feel alive and peaceful and optimistic. And for me, I find uh, being in nature does that for me, and exercise does that for me, listening to Christian music does that for me. So when I go for runs, which I regularly do along the Hudson River or the Croton River, listening to Christian music, I feel very restored after. It's really one of the best things I do for myself, and I feel... Though I'm not necessarily praying the whole time, I feel close to God during those times. Um, gardening actually restores my soul. Going out and pulling up those weeds by the roots is such a good feeling. Picking flowers, making arrangements, everything to do with gardening restores my soul. And for you, it may be something to do with art, making art, enjoying art. It could be baking, cooking, puttering with old cars. It could be playing with your grandchildren, playing golf, playing tennis, whatever. Find what, for you, restores you and actually make it a priority. Give yourself permission to do those things regularly because that will restore your soul, as does, of course, prayer and Bible reading. But all these things restore our souls. And then for the being in the dark valleys, just a few um, practical things. First of all, you may be very disciplined and have like a read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year kind of plan or something, and you are really good at sticking to it. But sometimes in dark valleys, we need to just kind of throw out the uh, routine and just dig into maybe one or two scriptures and meditate on them, maybe read about them. Just focus on what is going to help you with that, that, what you're going through. So for me, when I was a new mom, 
the scripture that I meditated on the most when I was going through those fears was God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And I just read that over and over and over. And I thought about it, a sound mind. I'm not crazy. I'm sane, you know, and that was really helpful to me. So that's one practical idea. Another is that you need your fellow sheep when you're in a dark valley because even though we can know that the shepherd is with us, we can't see him, we can't talk to him and hear him answer back the same way we can with friends. And we should not be trying to go it alone in dark valleys. I know for me, woman to woman has been just really a blessing because it's a place where women come together and they share what they're going through, they ask for prayer requests. One thing that's amazing, you know, kind of struck me is though the women are of all ages, a lot of it does have to do with our children and grandchildren. We never stop being a parent. We can share those worries with others and pray for each other. And it's meant a lot to me. And this past year, I've come back to it more regularly. I was working the last few years. I wasn't able to come that much. But I started coming regularly. And then within two months, my husband had accepted a job in Seattle and moved to start work. And I was like, whoa, now I actually really need support more than I usually have. Like It's been a, a kind of turbulent time. And I'm so thankful that I did return to woman to woman when I did. So I just encourage you find that group of people. Maybe it's just people you hang, you know, have dinner with regularly, whatever, but share what you're going through. And then finally, if it's really such a dark valley that you're struggling and you can't see hope, don't be afraid to get professional help. Don't feel like I'm a Christian I can't go to a you know a psychologist or whatever. That's just not true. Pastor Dick would be a good resource to get you know send you somewhere. But you, sometimes we need we need more, and that's okay. Um, the shepherd is still with us, and he ultimately he's the one who's going to bring healing to us. So walking through the dark valley with God as our shepherd is really basically seeking to orient ourselves to the reality of God's presence, even when it's hard to see. Wherever the shepherd leads us in this life, we can trust that he is faithful. He wants to give us the rest that we desperately need. His love and goodness are literally following us and it's literally chasing after us. We had uh, Rachel holding goodness and following. It's chasing us. Um, Even though we can't always detect or feel them. And he is right beside us, even when it's so dark that we cannot see. He laid down his life for us, and he will never abandon us. He will be true to us. He will be faithful, not only in this life, but in all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are with us. Your rod and your staff comfort us. We thank you that you feed us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads with oil. Our cups overflow. And your goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in your house forever. We thank you for being that shepherd to us. And I pray that you would just remind us of this in times when we are going through a dark time or times when we're just stressed by life. Bring back to our mind the words of these psalm, this psalm and let us feel your presence and let us turn to you and trust because you are faithful. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>